support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Ocean's Edge Realty, a sponsor of the second annual International Maritime Film Festival, a contest of films celebrating the heritage, spirit of adventure, and ingenuity of boats and waterborne pursuits, September 29th through October 1st at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. Tickets and information at MaritimeFilmFestival.com. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. While environmental education has a long history, the field was galvanized by Earth Day in 1969 and has gained many new practitioners since. Here in Maine, we have many active approaches to learning and teaching about our natural world as a focus. And this morning, we're wonderfully glad to have um, some folks in the studio and later by phone who can help us with the topic of environmental education. I'm calling it Lessons from the Field. And uh, uh, first, I'll introduce uh, Hazel Stark and Joe Horn, both of the main outdoor school in Millbridge. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you very us. much for having us. And here also in the studio is Eliza Oldock, who is uh, a COA graduate. And last we talked with her uh, in the studio, you were talking about Indivisible. Yep, that's and right. Still active with, with Indivisible? Mm-hmm, I am. But you've spent the summer working with these guys with the main Blueberry School. Exactly, Great. yes. Great. Well, um, uh, Hazel and, and Joe, uh, the last time I think I saw you in person, we were we we encountered each other on the Allagash. <laughs> You've been doing a lot since <laughs> since that time. Tell us a little bit about the Maine Outdoor School. Yeah. So, um, indeed, since we saw you two years ago on the Allagash by sheer chance as we were paddling down the river, uh, since then we have successfully incorporated Maine Outdoor School uh, in March of 2016 is when we legally incorporated as an organization. So we're just moving into our second year of programming and we're really focused on the concept of resilience education. So looking at how can we learn from the natural world around us to inform how both people and our communities can become more resilient. So, Joe, what do you bring to it? What's your background? What, how do you bring to um, a focus on environmental education and resilience education? Yeah, definitely. So um, my background started in Connecticut. I grew up there and uh, had a family that was really invested in taking us outside always. And I was so lucky to have that experience. Um, I got into the Boy Scouts, which was another mm-hmm. like foundational experience for me out in seeing that level of environmental education which led me to Unity College. So I was able to really see that hands-on, very place-centric way of engaging with the world and with sciences. And I just loved that. So I launched into environmental uh, environmental biology and botany and really started getting into the sciences. 
But then, like, as I was progressing through that field, really found myself wishing that I could more directly connect with people who are in the non-scientific community. I found science very isolated, and it's doing really great work, but I wanted to be bridging that gap between mm -hmm. your average citizen. So I started getting into environmental education, and it took me all the way down on this path. I was teaching in California, in Wyoming, uh, Massachusetts, up here in Maine, and all around just really getting into it and led us to start Maine Outdoor mm -hmm. School. Hazel, what, what led you to be interested in this field? Yeah, well, similar to Joe, I also had a, a family and parents who were really supportive of getting me outside. So I grew up in rural Maine, and I really did actually choose a tent to be my bedroom from the time I was nine until I left for college at 18. So the outdoors was a really important thing for me to play and learn and explore. Um, and my parents took me camping and hiking all the time. So I recognized that the outdoors was a really important uh, part of my life and health and well-being that still carries me forward today. Day. And when I went to college, I was really focused on the natural sciences and botany and, and humans' relationship with the, the world around us, both scientifically speaking and otherwise. And so then I realized that outdoor education was a really wonderful way of helping bridge that gap between, for Joe, the scientific community and um, everybody else, and for me, thinking about how do we draw those connections between humans and the environment and how we're related to each other. So I started work in outdoor schools all around the country. Um, and doing both naturalist guiding work as well as more formal um, teaching at an outdoor school kind of work and recognize that the impacts of that to students and the teachers that experienced that was so positive um, and helpful in, in meeting everybody's goals well and made everybody healthier and more aware of the world around us in a really hopeful way. So um, I wanted to continue that in rural Maine where we don't have a lot of access to mm -hmm. opportunities like that. Mm -hmm. Eliza, how about you? How have you intersected with the whole field of environment? environmental education. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I got my start, I guess, in environmental ed as a summer camper um, at a camp that really emphasized just being outside and getting muddy and exploring and learning through sort of these free explorations in the woods. Um, and that camp felt like an important place to come back to as a counselor in training and then as a counselor. And I sort of um, little by little realized that there was uh, really important work to be done in in taking kids outside. Um, and I don't know if I ever officially called it outdoor education or environmental education until I started working with Maine Outdoor School mm. um, and sort of had a more structured approach to how to facilitate these experiences outdoors mm -hmm. for, for students. Have you got a, a working definition of what you do? Um, environmental education is the broadest. How would you define what you do? I think that uh, environmental education as a whole is something that that the field has been collectively trying to define since the first Earth Day, as you mentioned. Um, David Orr, who's a, a professor of environmental studies and politics at Oberlin College, I think said it best that all education is environmental education because all education exists within our environment. So they're inseparable. So regardless of whether we're very intentionally teaching about the environment, it's always environmental education. That being said, we've tried to sort of rein in that definition a little bit more. I think Hazel can speak a little bit to the Tbilisi Declaration of 1977. Yeah, okay. so this was a this was a pretty important uh, groundwork for environmental education, the Tbilisi de Declaration of 1977 that really set the precedent for what exactly environmental education is. Because while all education, as Joe mentioned, exists when the, within the context of our environment, 
environment. The question is, how how do we actually specifically address that context and how we're teaching? So this declaration had three particular goals for the field of environmental education. The first one was to really foster an awareness of the interdependence between social, political, and ecological systems. That was a really mm-hmm. important piece, so fostering that awareness. The second was providing the learning opportunities to help people protect and improve the environment. So we can't protect or improve it if we don't we aren't aware of it or, and we don't know how we could actually do that. And then their third goal, their third and final goal was creating new patterns of behavior. So it was the focus on action. How do we actually work together towards the well-being of the environment and everybody that's a part of that um, in in our patterns of behavior? So as you can see from that, environmental education is extremely interdisciplinary, and it really has to be interdisciplinary to be effective. Mm. And that notion of of having some experience in the out-of-doors, mostly, we're talking Mm -hmm. about out-of-doors as environment, um, really helps ground people in, in their own experience and their Therefore, leads them to be inquisitive, and then leads them perhaps to action. Exactly. Um, so, in my generation, it was litter. You know, it was mm-hmm. pick up stuff. Uh, perhaps in your generation, it was um, oh, let's recycle the, the bottles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you seeing now in terms of translating um, some of the the experience to action? What in in your experience? What do you hope that students will do as a result of your outdoor school? Well, it takes a great many forms and has a lot of outcomes. So some of the forms that environmental education can take is things like nature centers and parks, interpretive programs. It's in our schools. There are residential programs across the country that are dedicated to it. It's in the media. It's community gardens. It -hmm. looks like so many different things. Ecotourism, so there's entire businesses that are structured off of environmental education and things like your work, the cooperative extension, really giving people the opportunities to engage in it. So when you think about just the breadth of everything that is environmental education, there are so many different outcomes. It Mm -hmm. could be some outcomes on the political level of incentives to try to get things like solar energy and wind energy um, or recycling programs we've been seeing across the country, um, more areas that are banning plastic bags or single-use plastics. It can also look like things like the entire organic gardening movement. Mm. Um, It can look like school gardens, which are cropping up everywhere, Mm -hmm. and kids are loving that they're growing their own radishes and lettuce. Mm -hmm. So it can be those sort of um, micro-examples as well as those macro-examples. I know that within my life time families have been more readily adopting things like composting in their homes and that's mm-hmm. a that's a huge change sure. but it's just a little sort of single family unit change right. i think the thing that excites me the most about some of the impacts of environmental education is and lately there's been a lot more research about it of those impacts of just having um, regular experiences outdoors whether that's as part of school or family experiences and there's a direct correlation with children who spend time outside whatever that looks like just time outside mm. playing exploring hiking um, directly correlated with adults as they in the research they call it pro-environmental behaviors but looking at a direct correlation from children spending time outside to adults who are really paying attention to those interconnections between the environment and the society that we live in. I think for me, the ultimate goal is for every adult to be aware of how everything's connected because Mm. ultimately the decisions that we make, whether that's in business and our economies, whatever that looks like, uh, if we're aware of those connections, the better we can all live and and the healthier the planet will be long-term. And we're seeing that as a result of environmental education already. Well, each of you sounded like... um, sound like you had parents or families mm-hmm. who encouraged 
um, getting out, out of doors. Uh, that influenced you. Um, schools are also places where um, we're now encouraging um, children to get outdoors more. Mm-hmm. And so your your programs, talk a little bit about the how your programs actually f- function. How do you interrelate with schools, for instance, um, to get those um, so students out, out of doors? Sure, And yeah. then we'll talk about Maine Brewery School and how that um, had a had a particular focus as well. Sure, yeah. So I think um, big picture, a lot of times environmental education is seen as really separate or as an add-on from the regular public school system. Um, and I think what's really important and valuable about environmental education is when it can integrate with the school system. I think across the board, uh, in our experience anyway, working primarily in Washington County, Maine, we're seeing teachers who really recognize and principals who really recognize the importance of students getting outside. So if we go into a school and say, okay, well, we can, we can teach whatever it is you need to teach, whatever it is you're accountable to. So whether that's a particular unit or a particular series of learning standards, not just in science, but also in language arts, math, whatever it may be, we can do that outside in an interdisciplinary way, hands-on, that really engages students. And usually uh, the students don't even realize they're learning in that setting. It's Once it's all over, they've, they've drawn all these connections that they didn't even realize were happening in their brains just because they were having fun and experiencing the real world. And it also offers an opportunity opportunity for teachers to recognize uh, what kind of opportunities exist in the teaching world um, outside of the four walls of their classroom. So we're able to go in and ask a teacher, what are you working on? And what could make your life a little bit easier for us to come in as opposed to we're going to interrupt your your school year to have a little field trip outside. Um, It's how can we supplement what you're doing already and serve as an anchor point for their classroom, which is a really helpful piece. Liza? Uh, Hazel, I know you've mentioned to me before that there are real benefits to students' learning when they're outside, regardless of what the subject is. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems really related to me. Um, And so one question I have is, if we're talking about outdoor education and environmental education, how much do students need? How how much time do you need outside before you see these these positive impacts. Yeah, so on the on the tiniest scale, there's been some research lately showing that just 10 minutes of nature time outside that can literally be sitting outside in a green space for 10 minutes has proven mental restoration benefits on a weekly cycle. So mm-hmm. that's uh, to me, that's an absurdly small amount of time, but that just shows how important it is that being outside in itself has really important mental and physical benefits, especially if you're moving while you're outside as well. Uh, so I think the most the most valuable ways about um, of that kind of impact is having regular experiences. So um, it's better to have 10 minutes a week than an hour a month at once. Um, it's because that regular experience with observation and just being aware of the world around you that can really have those impacts. And on a very specific level, the schools that have uh, either integrated or have outdoor um, outside organizations coming in to do environmental education are seeing impacts of higher test scores by students who are experiencing that, higher academic achievement by students because suddenly they're they're really engaged in the relevant world around them. And that's exciting to anybody to, to get engaged in that. And so there's some really good benefits there. Yeah, a really good example of that at a school that we taught in California. It was an outdoor education center, and they had their programs entirely outdoors. But there was one specific school that would always schedule their week outdoor school to coincide with their standardized testing. So there was one morning, or perhaps it was one day of time, where the kids would be sitting inside of the dining hall just doing their tests in the middle of the week. And they actually found it was the first time they did that. It was a total fluke. They It was just a scheduling issue. They had to do the testing then, and they found – 
afterwards that the test scores went up by by lots and it wasn't it wasn't just a little tiny blip it mm. was it was a huge difference between just taking the test in the school environment and then in the middle of the week at outdoor school where they had had this time to just be outdoors mm. and i don't necessarily think that that has to do with exactly the specific lessons that they're getting at outdoor school but just there's some sort of a physiological psychological thing that happens when humans are in nature mm. it allows the kids to better focus it allows them to to connect whatever information they have in their brain to their hand so they can write the answer down on, on mm. the test. Mm. Liza, did you see some of that um, happening in, in the Blueberry School? Tell us a little bit about the Blueberry School and then and how you saw that happening. Sure. So the Blueberry Harvest School is a school for uh, the children of migrant workers that are up to, to rake blueberries in Maine. Um, it's run by the Maine Migrant Education Program and a nonprofit called Mono and Mono. And for the past two years, Mono and Mono has been working with Maine Outdoor School to provide outdoor education at the Blueberry Harvest School. Um, so this year, I was involved with that piece of it, the outdoor education. Um, and so we had a decision sort of early on in the summer of how to structure when and how often these students would be going outside and ultimately decided on um, taking each class outside for a short period of time every day, um, sort of to get those benefits that, mm. that Hazel discussed. Um, and so this summer I was responsible for designing curriculum and also facilitating those outdoor education blocks for each class period every day. Um, and so you asked about sort of impacts of that. Uh, and it's hard to say over a short, short time period. It's a four week school. Um, certainly I saw enjoyment in being outdoors and these wonderful moments of, um, you know, looking very closely at a worm and being so excited to find a worm and to really take some some time to look closely at it and draw it and think of a name for it and, and just build these connections with non-human things in the outdoor world. Mm -hmm. um, even over a short period of time, that was definitely evident and I think was ultimately, hopefully, beneficial to students. Yeah, I think also some of the things that I noticed from um, your experiences teaching at Blueberry Harvest School this year was just a, a concept as simple or as complex as empathy building, I think was really evident and always is evident in a very short period of time. Because uh, I know last year when we worked with the program at the beginning of the time, uh, before outdoor education as uh, sort of formally thought of was really integrated, the beginning of that time, um, students were really, uh, you know, wanting to maybe they were nervous about grasshoppers and other bugs and kind of like weirded out by them but by the end of the time they were seeking them out so that that difference of being aware and not scared of the outdoor world and actually seeking them out recognizing that they're cool and there's things to learn about was great and one quote that I remember from one of your students um, looking at worms at first feeling a little grossed out and then looking at it for a little while longer and she said I made a bed for it and a pillow um, which was a really sweet moment from a kindergarten student who moved from you worms are icky to like I want to take care of this worm. Mm, great. <laughs> I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about environmental education in, a, in the broadest sense and how it's um, carried out through uh, groups like the Maine Outdoor School in Millbridge. And we have Hazel Stark and Joe Horn and Eliza Oldark uh, there from uh, here from from that experience. Um, and we will later on um, ask for your phone calls as well. But um, as you think about um, environmental education and the work that you're doing, um, are there some challenges to working with school groups, for instance? What are the challenges that schools face as you um, try to get them to think about 
environmental education as not necessarily a, a segment, but part of what they do all the time. Yeah, I think I think that really does highlight the issue. A lot of schools see it as a as an additional thing that they have to be accountable mm-hmm. for. And teachers and administrators have to deal with standards that are at the state level. They have to deal with standards that are at the federal level. There's the standardized testing. There's um, you know changes in disciplinary issues. There's concerns about that parents have that are sort of being projected onto the schools. There's so much that schools have to grapple with. So I think the challenge in general in the environmental ed field is to to really be clear that we're not just an additional thing that you have to do. Mm-hmm. We're here to help. We're all, it takes a village to raise a kid, and we're just one piece of that overall uh, educational scheme that's happening. So for Maine Outdoor School, what that really looks like is we say, what are the standards that you're really challenge to meet day to day or what is it maybe it's um, standards that are specifically curricular maybe it's something interpersonal between the kids that they're just needing to work out some teamwork or leadership kind of issues maybe they just need some time outside to sort of refocus and ravine but it's specifically the standards and they'll throw oddball standards at us and we love just like sitting down in our office and deconstructing unpacking those standards and turning that into an authentic experience outdoors that's engaging a really good example of that that we did in the spring is we worked with Millbridge Elementary and at the sort of pinnacle of this outdoor experience they were asked to make a model of Millbridge using natural found objects specifically thinking about how humans can use the sun and sort of take advantage of that abundant resource and the kids came out with unbelievable ideas. They were talking about forestry because, of course, plants use the sun in order to make wood and things like that. They were talking about farmlands and expanding farmlands around Millbridge. They were talking about solar panels on their schools and on, you know, on the top of the local grocery store and things like that. They had all of these ideas, and it was a mix of engineering. There was uh, ecology in there. There was nutrient cycling and energy flow through systems. We were tackling all of these complex scientific um, standards while they're engaged in what's essentially an art project and a physics project that's outdoors, hands-on, kinesthetic, and they were completely engaged and could have spent all day doing that. (laughs) That's great. We have someone on the line who can help us understand a slightly different way uh, or or a similar way to do environmental education, and that's Yvonne Thomas, uh, Education Director at the Island Institute. I'm actually going to ask Eliza um, to uh, introduce her a little bit because you helped pull this show together. Great. Uh, Yes, so Yvonne Thomas is the Director of Education with the Island Institute. That's, um, well, actually, Yvonne, are you on the line? I am. Oh, great. Could you describe your role with the Island Institute? (laughs) Sure. So um, the Island Institute is a 33-year-old organization that is primarily focused on community development, and we work with island and coastal communities to help those communities be the best that they can be, do the work that they want to do. And there's a um, very important connection between year-round communities and schools. And so my work is really to support the schools in um, becoming as sustainable and providing the best possible program they can for their students. And certainly environmental education is an important part of that and an important part of how we work with schools. Yeah. What are some maybe examples of environmental education in some of these schools that you've helped develop? So we are, are most of the time our focus is on the marine environment, although not all of the time. So many of our island, obviously island communities are very marine focused and coastal communities. And so we are working with schools to find ways to make that connection between the um, school's curriculum and the the 
the island or coastal communities environment, particularly the marine environment. And most recently, we've been focused a lot on kelp aquaculture, and we find that it really resonates with students. It is very supportive of many of the standards and um, learning goals that teachers have. And there's just a bunch of really practical ways that it fits. For example, kelp grows from the fall to the spring. So unlike with school gardens, which sometimes sort of go um, wild or go dry during the summer if no one's really there and nobody's paid to take care of them, the the sort of idea of a kelp garden um, is very much within the traditional school year. The um, expense to get involved with it is minimal, especially in fishing communities where, you know, very often the kids will have the, the rope and the mooring and the stuff that you need to get it going. So it's, it's easy for them to just step outside and find the materials that they need. And then there's all these incredible connections that can be made between the arts and um, the sort of civic engagement. They have to go through a permitting process. Um, there's also a lot of sort of marketing and thinking about, like, what can we do with this stuff? Who wants to eat it or what can we make it into? Um, and it really helps them sort of understand they all know kelp, they all know seaweed, they see it um, on the shoreline, and if they're fishing, they see it you know, growing on their lines of their traps, but, th- but thinking about it in a different way and sort of connecting to it and having it be school and having it be learning and having it be that the, a way of them um, meeting standards has been really positive um, for them. Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, I was going to. Uh, this is uh, Ron uh, Beard, Yvonne. Hi. Um, and how about the Island Fellows uh, pro- uh, program? That's um, you, you are actually placing um, fellows in uh, island communities. Sometimes Correct. working with schools. What kind of backgrounds do they come from, and how do they kind of translate this environmental education? Yeah. Yeah. So just. Real quick, for folks who don't know, um, the Fellows Program is one of Island Institute's um, programs where we place recent college graduates into island and coastal communities to work on projects that the community has identified they want some help with. And so often those projects do have an environmental component to them. Often they have a school or education component, but not always. Um, And an example of of a fellow that's working in a school in an environmental capacity right now is at Dear All Stonington Elementary. We have a fellow who's working with the science teacher there and another nonprofit to help um, sort of rebuild an, a, a nature trail that had gone kind of um, had been had, be, had become dormant. And so they, the students, together with these adults, are working to rebuild the nature trail, build kiosks. They've done all kinds of research on what's growing along the nature trail. These are middle school students who are now sort of teaching what they've learned to the elementary students. They're collecting data and um, in effect they're becoming stewards of this particular chunk of land that's on their school property and and it's been a really powerful learning experience for everyone and that fellow has really helped make that connection between what are some of the what are some of the learning goals that need to happen the te- help the teacher kind of make those connections with the other um, organizations within the community and do do some of the work that, that as um, we were talking about early, the teachers are just asked to do so much. There's so much happening with school reform and so many demands that are being made that, you know, most teachers that we work with, I would say almost all of them, want to be providing these kinds of experiences for their students, but they don't often have the capacity and they need the help of outside organizations to really make it um, work and also to keep the academic rigor 
um, really high because there's no more just sort of like, oh, let's go out and like play and, and look around and see what happens. You know, there, the, the, it has to be like, what standard are we working on? How are we going to, you know, prove that this is um, meeting some learning outcome? So that, um, that example of that fellow helping at the Gerald Stonington Elementary School is a really good one. And if I can, I, I was, I was uh, reviewing that program, and um, I just want to read a quote from one of the students. There's a bunch of quotes on a, a blog that's on the, I think it's on the um, Natural Resources, Main Natural Resources Council website, but um, just this sort of sums it up. The this, this student says, I did learn more by being out of the classroom because I was able to see firsthand what I was researching. It wasn't in a book another person wrote. It was in front of me, ready to be re researched and cataloged by me. And I think it's that personal connection that the students feel that really makes the learning so important and so real and so um, kind of lasting. Great. Joe, did you have a question for comment for Yvonne? Yeah, just to, to sort of piggyback on that, um, she mentioned these sort of project-based components, and it's oftentimes a very backwards look at how to do education, backwards, very progressive good, um, because oftentimes those educational experiences, you give a group of students some sort of a challenge, whether it's creating a school garden or a kelp uh, production, um, and then all of a sudden they're having to untangle, you know, how do we actually get there from here? Mm. So then the teacher ends up taking this sort of uncomfortable role of sitting on the back burner a little bit and, and sort of documenting the standards as they emerge. It's an emergent process where perhaps they're going to be pulling in uh, engineering in, in the form of how do we build this thing? Or maybe mathematics of like how do, we, um, how do we predict yields? And maybe we're looking into social studies of how are other cultures utilizing this resource that you know previously wasn't a resource for us. So because it's so emergent, the teacher has to sit in the back of the room and sort of catalog what standards the students are actually achieving and make sure that they can document that in a very thorough way and then be able to sort of cross-examine that against the entire exhaustive list of standards that they have to be accountable for it and say, okay, well, we managed to get 90% of it done. Now we just need to go back and there's these small set of things that maybe we need to teach in a more traditional sort of didactic manner. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit of a different spin on how we even approach the educational environment. Mm -hmm. It's very effective as a result. Yvonne, what else would you add and, and make sure you um, give us information so our listeners can connect with the Island Institute and, and the environmental education that you're helping coordinate? Sure. Well, I want, I want to just add um, a tiny bit about my background and, and way, the way I got to this because it was yes. a little bit different from the others. I spent 20 years as a school counselor on islands uh -huh. and um, have been at the Island Institute for the past three years. But so my um, sort of love and fascination and sort of belief in environmental education came from watching how well it worked for students uh -huh. and seeing how both the students that tend to be hard to engage yep. and tend to be not as successful in school, but also seeing how the kids who, who can sort of thrive in a traditional school environment, how both sets of kids just kind of blossom in an outdoor setting, in a setting where we don't already know the answer to this experiment. We don't already know whether it's going to be right or wrong and and how having it be something that they can relate to, something that's in their schoolyard or in, in the harbor at their um, island just unlocks a an ability to learn, an ability to care, an ability to engage in their education that is kind of there aren't that many other ways that I've seen that happen. So I really feel like it serves students incredibly well to have these rich environmentally based um, experiences as part of their um, education and not just, 
oh, it's the end of the year, we're going to go on a field trip, right. but that they become really integrated and they're part of how schools do the business of learning. So that's just one piece um, that it, does, it, it to, to, to sort of, um, you know, kind of validate what what's, was said earlier. And then the other thing I want to share is just that um, organizations like the Maine Outdoor School and there are many, many others which provide these incredible um, programs working with schools and also have their own um, facilities or their own um, places for, for working with students. Our approach is a little bit different because we're, you know, we're an office building in Rockland. Um, and so we work much more with through collaboration with other organizations. So, for example, back to the kelp, when we started really working on that, we had to look around and say, like, okay, we don't have, you know, we don't have a lab. We don't have um, ocean frontage. We can't put a kelp line in our, uh, in our sort of, like, backyard. Um, but who can? And so we looked to Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership and Herring Gut Learning Center in Port Clyde and started helping find teachers and schools who were really interested in doing this kind of work and partnering them with organizations that had the um, technical expertise and the, and the physical facilities as well as our own in-house um, sort of technical expertise and then, and then our networks of you know, um, leaders in the field to kind of pull together all these different pieces that would be really, really hard for any one teacher. They just don't have the time to sure. make phone calls, um, much less to coordinate all of those pieces. So we really help connect different organizations with the schools around that identified topic that a school is interested in and work very collaboratively in that way. Great. Thanks so much for adding both your own background and this way of working that um, I think is, is important. And uh, again, f- uh, for listeners who want to be- learn more about your programs? Yes. So... Uh, Please visit our website, islandinstitute.org. Please email me if you have specific questions. And there's lots of information within our website about the work that we do and then also work that our um, partner organizations do as well. So um, that would be the place to start. Great. Thanks so much, Yvonne, for being with us this morning. Yvonne Thomas, the Education Director at the Island Institute. Um, You're listening to Talk of the Towns this morning. Uh, We're talking about environmental education. Here in the studio, we have Hazel Stark and Joe Horn of the Maine Outdoor School in Millbridge, and um, Eliza Oldark, who was um, teaching with them in the Maine Blueberry Harvest School. I've got that right now. And I was thinking of, of Yvonne's experience um, uh, talking about uh, the, the students working on a nature trail. If I go back to 1966, that's what I was doing in my high school is created a nature trail. And that led to my whole career. I mean, that, that whole environmental education, then going to the, the uh, summer camp for uh, the Society for Protection of New Hampshire Forests, and, and that just opened up my world. So anyway, really, I think these can be really formative experiences for mm-hmm. students. Eliza? I think Yvonne also brought up a really good point of environmental education as needing to connect with the human community in mm-hmm. the area where you're working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually led me to wonder, Hazel and Joe, uh, how you decided to do this work in Down East Maine? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the short answer to that is that uh, rural and urban places really need access to this. And currently there aren't a lot of rural places with ready access to connecting with those rural humans in those areas to these opportunities. And for me, having grown up not too far away from Millbridge, uh, it was really important for me when I grew up to be able to have the kind of impact that was really important that I got from my family, but create an organization that could support that with schools um, in the area to really build 
build the resilience of rural areas, which is uh, largely what creates the resilience in urban areas. There's a really important give and take. Hmm. We now have uh, Ryder Scott with us. Ryder is the statewide director for the University of Maine 4-H centers at Blueberry Cove, Bryant Pond, and Tanglewood. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ryan. Ryder. Thanks, Ron. Um, tell us a little bit about your work and how you came to, to um, be involved in the, the larger field of environmental education. Sure. Well, it's been great listening to some of the stories uh, and, and folks' backgrounds and what, what motivates uh, professionals to dedicate their lives to environmental education. My story is actually very similar. I grew up in northern Maine um, and had an incredible outdoor childhood in the streams and fields and woods around the the town of Presque Isle. Um, And then while I was still a student at College of the Atlantic, when we first met, Ron, um, I went to work in the environmental education field, and I I immediately knew that I had found my calling, um, the opportunity to connect other people, young people especially, uh, to the natural world and to facilitate authentic experiences um, that, that really, you know, I could see and feel that we're leading them to become their own healthiest and fullest uh, and most resilient selves. Um, and in that context, that outdoor and, and um, environmental education context, you know, was, uh, for me, the most uh, uh, <clears throat> direct way to facilitate those experiences. Uh, but early on, I noticed a serious gap, and that was that uh, many of the programs that I worked for uh, were accessible mostly uh, to the wealthy, um, children and families of the wealthy. And you know, I would look around and, and not see any of the young people in my groups uh, that I was leading from my hometown or even really from Maine in many cases. And so... Uh, Uh, Eventually, I found my way to a job as program director at what was then the Maine Conservation School. Uh, And to make a long story short, we facilitated a merger between the Maine Conservation School and the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and that allowed us to join uh, a family, a network of 4-H camp and learning centers and this was the culmination of my goals professionally because our mission as 4-H centers through University of Maine Cooperative Extension is to make environmental education and summer camp experiences accessible to all and affordable to all, regardless of financial status. Um, and so it's, it's been quite a journey, and um, it's, a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be uh, leading the 4-H centers in Maine, and we have incredible staff. We're serving uh, almost 10,000 youth statewide um, just in the Camp and Learning Center programs, um, and that's a separate number from the what people traditionally think of when they think of 4-H, which is the club-based um, programs based out of the county extension offices. Would you have a brief description of each of the uh, are there differences between uh, Tanglewood and Blueberry Cove and Bryant Pond? Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about those differences. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, eventually the Maine Conservation School became Bryant Pond 4-H Camp and Learning Center, and that's where I'm based. Uh, We're in western Maine over near Bethel, uh, and we're on a lake, so we're a mountain and and lake environment, freshwater environment. Um, 
there's a strong focus on conservation education and strong ties to um, the State Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Um, so we're connecting kids to um, the natural heritage of Maine and the outdoor heritage, uh, traditional activities like hunting and fishing um, and providing safety programs. Um, I'll loop back around to Bryant Pond uh, in a minute. Tanglewood is, is the oldest 4-H camp in Maine. It was founded uh, over 35 years ago uh, by an old friend and colleague of Ron's, uh, Les Hyde. And um, Tanglewood is in, in Lincolnville. It, it's on State Park property in Camden Hills State Park and um, really has an incredible rich history of, of ecology education um, and is also very strong in the arts and connecting the arts um, through the natural world. And then Blueberry Cove in 2005 also joined the 4-H um, Camp and Learning Center family. Um, so we're, we're celebrating um, over just over 10 years of, of Blueberry Cove as a 4-H center. Um, it was a summer camp program for many years since the 1940s and in fact was the first uh, integrated interracial uh, summer camp program in the state of Maine. Um, and some think perhaps the first in the country back in the 40s, uh, really before, even before the civil rights movement and so forth. So um, it's got a rich history of connecting um, young people both from Maine as well as, you know, they would, they would bust kids up from uh, New York City and Boston and Philadelphia to, to come to have that coastal experience. Um, and Blueberry Cove is in Tenants Harbor on a gorgeous piece of property right on, right on the water there. Um, again, we're going to run out of time. Are there particular philosophies that, um, that you try to um, help your staff understand and, and, and use? Yeah, 4-H, uh, you know, many people, when they think of 4-H, they think of uh, the traditional 4-H activities, young people raising a milk cow and showing it at the county fair and so forth. Um, but in its essence, 4-H uh, is a holistic youth development philosophy, um, integrating the head, heart, hands, and health. And so for us, the environmental education context is, is really the perfect um, outgrowth of 4-H. And uh, we use that, that philosophy of um, connecting youth, again, through their senses and through their, um, the, their spirit, really, um, to the natural world um, through that 4-H philosophy. And, uh, again, uh, how, how would uh, folks learn more about um, the, the variety of programs that uh, you offer? Yeah, we're easy to find through the University of Maine Cooperative Extension's website. Um, extension.main.edu. Great. And a last question, then I'll, I'll throw that out to our guests in the studio. Um, uh, COA College of the Atlantic was was part of your base. Did did that at, did that in kind of inform what you're doing now in some way? Well, most definitely, COA provided uh, uh, me with a background and and a really a strong belief that authentic learning experiences in communities and in the outdoors and in the classroom, but either way, truly authentic experiences that, that make a real-world difference um, are by far the most powerful and meaningful educational experiences, and that's what we try to do every day through, um, through our programs. Ryder, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. 
Thanks, Ron. Ryder Scott is the statewide director of the University of Maine 4-H centers at Blueberry Cove, Bryant Pond, and Tanglewood. So I'll ask each of our other guests how their college experiences um, informed their work, uh, Hazel and, and Eliza, both at College Atlantic and um, Joe at Unity College, um, all really important ways in which we learn and do. But uh, Hazel, what was your experience at COA? Yeah, I would definitely echo what Ryder was saying about his experience at COA, where um, COA was the first educational experience that I had where learning was both very hands-on, but also uh, incredibly interdisciplinary. Um, and so no matter what subject or class I was taking, it was inherently tied to all the other subjects that exist. So really experiencing that connection between humans and the environment, between math and English, all of those pieces uh, really helped form my understanding of how education could be done really well and how the planet could really uh, thrive in the future if everyone looks at the world that way. And while the others are preparing, thinking about their answers, I'll list our phone numbers in case you as listeners listeners want to participate in our conversation about environmental education today, 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500 if you'd like to participate in our conversation about environmental education. Eliza Oldock, how did your COA, College of the Atlantic, experience inform your work today? Yeah, I can really mostly just echo what Hazel and, and Ryder said. It was interdisciplinary. It was uh, happening in community and in the outdoors and that felt personally very meaningful. Um, I was reminded uh, when Yvonne was describing these project-based education practices um, that are happening in islands around Maine um, that for me COA was one of the first places where it was truly working on meaningful projects and letting letting students take the lead. So oftentimes you know Island Institute and Maine Outdoor School sort of promote that within um, primary and, and secondary education, mm. and COA is a place where it can happen beyond that mm. as well. How about you, Joe? What, what did Unity kind of give you as, a, as teaching tools or learning philosophies? Yeah, definitely. Unity College is so locally focused, and we would be in the classroom learning about these larger global issues, but then at the end of the day, it was always go outside, roll up your sleeves, get dirty, and let's make change happen. Mm -hmm. And it was just that you know empowerment to, to see that we can identify these larger issues, see how that reflects in our communities, and just get the job done. Mm -hmm. And so that would manifest itself as you know student groups going out and just doing trail work and getting that done or going down and uh, you know volunteering at a local local soup kitchen or putting on a, a meal for the hungry or just driving around the state of Maine and you know doing projects as we go it was really just um, very kinesthetic very engaging and empowering to know that you can make that much change in such a short amount of time by just doing it sure yeah great 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 way to learn and then then to do one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight if you'd like to participate in our conversation about environmental education we've we've talked a little bit about the environmental education and mainstream mainstream schools anything anybody wants to add to that collection and then uh, Liza's got a couple of other questions that uh, she might put to our guests here in the studios. Yeah, um, when Yvonne was talking about her experience as a guidance counselor and having seen it firsthand, the kind of impacts that, positive impacts that these kinds of learning experiences have on students, it was reminding me about uh, the sort of question of how do kids of different, um, different behavioral trends deal with environmental education compared to what a lot of people say is the normal classroom. And uh, I think 
my first response to that common question is, um, I think all students struggle in a normal classroom at some point. I mean, I can't think of a single person who is like, yes, I loved every year of school my entire <laughs> life. Like adolescence is hard. School is hard for different reasons, for different people at different times. But I think what is really exciting about environmental education is that um, in my own personal experience and in the research, they're, they're seeing that students who struggle the most indoors tend to thrive the most outdoors. Mm. So specifically students um, with attention uh, deficit disorder, for example, ADD or ADHD, they really thrive outdoors because suddenly they're in a place where there is so much to observe. And I especially love working with these students because I can give them a job like, all right, in one particular case, I was hiking with a group of students when lady slippers were blooming. And there were a lot of lady slippers in this particular area. So I asked this one kid who the teacher beforehand came up to me and said, just so you know, Hazel, like this kid is, <laughs> is you know, bounces off the walls sure. and can really struggle. So just be aware that this kid's going to be tough. So the first thing I did with this kid, I said, hey, there's a lot of lady slippers. There's one. That's what it looks like. As we hike, can you count how many that you can find and then tell me at the end and share with your class? So, of course, he saw way more lady slippers than I could see and certainly more than any of the other students could see. And then he had an opportunity to really shine in front of the class where mm. he was able to say, hey, I saw these lady slippers and had made all these guesses about why were there so many? Why were they shaped the way they were? And for his peers, it was the first time that they might have seen the student really thrive in an academic setting. Um, and also he could feel really proud and be really focused of that that kind of an experience and that was simply because he was outside and able to observe and I'll I just, think I'll just list our phone numbers just in case there are folks listening and want to participate one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight if you'd like to participate Joe yeah I was just gonna dovetail off of that um, there's been a lot of research done recently about the power of outdoor and environmental education for students especially with things like ADD and ADHD um, and a lot of the conclusions that are being drawn is that these are things that are ingrained in the biology of, of humans and you know these things that now we classify as disorders were at one time things that allowed us to thrive on this planet and to get us to where we are today. Mm. So you take those kids that struggle in the four walls indoor classroom setting put them outside and without failure they are the top of the class they're oh. leaders and they're they're on it we know that that our education system came because there were you know folks wanted good workers mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they mm -hmm. regularized education and and probably created great workers, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. maybe not the inventors, not the observers, the, the people who, who thrive in that kind of setting. Yeah, yeah. Liza? I, I have a question as well about the impacts of environmental and outdoor education, especially now, especially when the this new generation is having increased screen time, uh, mm. spending more time in virtual worlds. What are some of the, the ways that maybe appears in your practice of outdoor education and what are some of the benefits of responding to screens with more time outside. Yeah. Yeah. Your point about screens is definitely important. They're showing now in the U.S. alone that kids are spending over 40 hours a week on screens. So they're really waking up on a screen, spending a lot of screen time at school. And then when they get home um, and that has so, so much evidence of that is, is being shown in decreasing attention spans, decreasing ability to remember things. Um, and of course, mental and physical health is not great when you're spending all your time on, on a screen. So I think what's great about 
about environmental education is it inherently addresses all of that by getting when a screen has this like instant uh, instant sort of reflex to whatever's going on. Um, the outdoors also provides that too, and in a much more physical and engaging way. And so um, those it really increases those attention spans and helps kids remember things because of that hands-on experience, increases their health as well. Um, and I think uh, all of that can really address those issues that we're seeing with increased screen time by decreasing it outside. Let's take mm-hmm. a phone call from Joan from Mount Desert Island. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please, Joan. Well, thank you for, for taking my call. Um, I'm particularly worried about the health and the numbers of conservation voters. Mm. So I'd like to know how uh, whether or not this is these schools are not-for-profits and whether they um, take donations and uh, can receive uh, help. Great. Great question. Thanks, Joan, for your call and your question. So this notion of of environmental education leads to better understanding, but it also leads to action. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, you're probably working with very young younger people who may not be voters, but is that your hope? Is that they're going to be thinking about policy issues as well, and and then funding? Uh, programs like the ones that you're operating? Well, I mean, let's be clear. Here in Maine, the love of the outdoors and wanting to protect those spaces is not a political issue. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves the wilderness. That's why we're in Maine, right? Mm -hmm. So we're able to, you know, we love living and working in Washington County because all of those people, that is a common space that we can all agree upon. We can go into these schools and say, we want to take the kids outside so that they can learn about pine trees and they can learn about blueberries and they can learn about lobsters. And across the board, everybody loves it and they want more of it mm. so i think that that unifier is something that um that's something that we can build upon and and grow from and we've been really well received by the county from mm-hmm. everybody yeah i think another piece of that is while i think it's common to to think as, as you just mentioned environmental education tends to be focused on children one of the things that we at maine outdoor school get excited about figuring out is how does environmental education work for learners of all ages so adults as well mm. and when i think about the core um the core goals behind environmental education about increasing engagement and stewardship for place and all the parts, all the aspects that are part of a place. Uh, there are different ways that that can take forms in businesses, in nonprofits, in schools. If we can uh, get folks to a place where they recognize the those important connections between uh, the environment and society and economy at a at a business level, at a school level, at a personal level, at all ages, I think that that's a really important piece. And so one of the other offerings that Maine Outdoor School has is, is offering some organizational services. So things like program evaluation for us is a really good example of how environmental education can apply to adults who are trying to look at how do we evaluate what our program is really doing. And so we apply those those teachings from the outdoors, like how does the outdoors uh, sort of evaluate what's going on and respond to that? Now, how do we do that at an organizational level in looking at a program and, and the kind of impacts it has, as well as visioning? What could it look like? How could we use the outdoors and what happens after a natural disaster, for example? How how do the things in our environment react to that and, and respond and adapt? Now, how do we do that in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own businesses? Because the more that we're reflecting the outdoors and what's going on there um, and understanding those connections at every level, the more people will care and be mm. stewards of their environment. So that notion of, of policy choices yeah. um, mm-hmm. is kind of at the end of, of um, that, that stewardship piece. Exactly. That we do have 
policy choices to make. Mm-hmm. And I suppose um, all of the forms of education help people understand if we go this path, we have these kinds of consequences. Right. If we go this path, we have some other kinds of consequences mm-hmm. and helping kind of people evaluate well, which consequences do I want. Exactly. And yeah. a lot of it's just deconstructing that, you know, this doesn't have to be a political thing. Right. It really can just be about us loving being outdoors and engaging in that resource. And if we just take all of the political stuff aside, that is something that we can all agree upon. And when you look at policies and when you are actually sitting in the voting booth, rather than just simply looking down sort of your party's uh, side of the table, you can actually start thinking, okay, what is what is it that I care about? Sure. And basically empowering students to be able to be in touch with what they care about and reflecting that in their vote and in their purchases and civic engagement in general. So um, we each have a minute uh, to <laughs> conclude. Uh, Liza, what, what are your hopes as you think about the field of environmental education going forward? And then we'll give... Um, Joe and, and Hazel a chance to answer that question too. Sure. Uh, so briefly, I, my hopes are that more students will have more opportunities to have environmental education, specifically outdoor education, and that will combat this rising tide of screens with with more time outside. Um, and also just echoing ideas that Yvonne and Ryder and Maine Outdoor School, Hazel and Joe have brought up of connecting to local communities and making this education sort of really um really connected both to the outdoor environment and the human environment. Great. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of the show has been focused on the organizations that are working on this, but I think it's really, uh, it's important to recognize that whether you're a parent or a teacher or whoever you are, um, environmental education is just right in your backyard. So I really encourage parents to just take their kids outside and push your kids outside to to explore, not literally, but figuratively push your kids outside um, to explore what's there. And a couple of books I can recommend, especially for parents. One is Richard Liu's new book called Vitamin N, which is five 500 Ways to Enrich Your Family's Health and Happiness, The Essential Guide to a Nature-Rich Life, has literally 500 ideas for how to do that if you're a parent. Um, And then a book that teachers and parents alike can use, Play the Forest School Way, has a bunch of activities that are really fun and engaging kids. Yeah, and then for teachers, it's so important to be getting kids outside, and the research has shown that even just, you know, Hazel was saying 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes a week, um, being outdoors has these huge benefits. So for school teachers, just getting the kids outside, whether that's having them sit in a quiet space in the woods and journaling, you know, it's a pretty intensive way of doing that, or even just going outside to explore, go for a little walk, do the normal math lesson that you do inside outdoors and just get into the routine of getting kids outside on a daily or weekly basis. You'll see the changes that that has in the students, their focus, their attention, their their memory. Um, that would be sort of my take Great. home. And folks are interested in learning more about Maine Outdoor School? Yeah, um, visit our website, maineoutdoorschool.org. You can also give us a call at 207-358-0412. Wonderful, wonderful. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for future topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant from 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning, uh, Hazel Stark and Joe Horn and uh, Eliza Oldock of the Maine Outdoor School in Millbridge, uh, Yvonne Thomas of the Island Institute and Ryder Scott of University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Uh, thanks to our uh, listeners who called in 
in with their questions. Thanks to our underwriters. Uh, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Good morning.